This week, what we want to do is spend a little time on a hillside outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it's an ugly place. And it's, a, it's an ugly reminder of both of how terrible sin is, and it's a beautiful reminder of how deep is the love of God for us who are sinners. Uh, at the end of our time after following the message today, we're going to take communion. And at communion time, Christians gather around this table. It's a family meal. It's something for those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. All of us children of God, we gather around the family meal, and there at the center of our gathering is the great central story of our family. A broken body, spilled blood, all of us brought into this family through adoption, through the sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross. That is the sum total of our hope when we come before God the Father. We have nothing else to boast about in the presence of God Almighty. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's all we have to pin our hopes to, and that's all. the only thing we can brag about is what Jesus did for us. When we come to the Bible, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four different gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and all four, of course, describe the crucifixion. And when we take all four together, the four different gospels highlight different facts surrounding the crucifixion. Much of it is the same. But when we take it all together, what we see is that Jesus was betrayed by one of his inner circle, Judas, and he was arrested. He was taken before the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and the religious leaders, they condemned Jesus. They then took Jesus to a place called the Praetorium, which is where the Roman authorities were centralized. The Jews had no authority of their own to put anyone to death. They needed Rome to do that for them. So they went to Rome. They went to the person of Pontius Pilate, who was then governor in Jerusalem, and Jesus stood trial before Pilate. Pilate wanted to wash his hands of the whole thing. He didn't think there was anything here. This is a Jewish religious matter. He wanted, to exclude, he wanted to basically exit stage left. So he had Jesus sent to a local client king of Rome, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod, for his part, was super excited. He'd heard a lot about Jesus, and he thought, this, I'll have my own private show. I'll see some sign. But Jesus, disappointingly, just kind of sat there quietly. So Herod had him beaten, dressed him like a king, and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate then has this interaction with Jesus and with the crowds outside, and he is more or less bullied. We're going to talk about this a little bit more further. Pilate's not a good man, by the way. I'm not trying to defend him. He's a coward at best. But he's basically bullied into sentencing Jesus to death. Jesus is then whipped, he's beaten, and he's led away to Calvary with a crude, mocking crown of thorns jabbed down onto his head. When I say he's whipped, what he was whipped with, the scourges that they would oftentimes beat someone with before a crucifixion, were uh, a, lot of, a tail of a lot of leather straps, oftentimes with some object attached to the end of them. Sometimes it was a piece of bone 
or a metal ball. And these were designed to cut the flesh open even to the muscle. And they were beaten nearly to death, hopefully, so that crucifixion wouldn't last long. But there were often a lot of bloodletting, very painful. Jesus was beaten savagely. And again, uh, he was given this cross of thorns as mockery. And then Jesus was crucified. It's amazing to me that this great central fact of Christianity in the Bible has, is so spare in details. <laughs> that most of the gospel accounts just say he was crucified without really describing it. But we all know what a horrific thing is caught, is captured in those few words. Jesus is laid out on a crude wooden apparatus and then through his physical flesh and bones was driven nails. He was attached to the cross, literally. And then the cross is stood up straight and there he hung for six hours, six grueling hours. Pilate had a placard put above Jesus' head that, said, that read simply, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders said to him, you should say, he said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate, again, not because he was a respecter of Jesus, but because he had great contempt and scorn for the people that he governed, said, what I've written, I've written. <laughs> he just loved to stick it to him. Then from the cross, Jesus makes a number of different statements. I'll just highlight a few of them. One, he says of the soldiers who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Those same soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is, the Gospels record for us that Jesus was mocked and insulted, not only by the people who were witnessing the crucifixion, but also by two men who were being crucified alongside of him. Jesus, at one point, speaks to his mother Mary and one of his closest friends, John, uh, the disciple. And in a very confusing exchange, he says to Mary, here is your son, pointing to John, and then to John, here's your mother. And we're told that from that day forward, Mary went and lived with John at his house. And I, I think growing up, I always had the idea that this was Jesus doing some last-minute um, loose-end kind of stuff from the cross, providing for his mother. But according to the biblical record, Jesus was actually living with her other adult sons in the town of Nazareth. So it does become a little confusing why Jesus would prefer this arrangement for his mother over her living with her other sons. And I think one of the things we can take away from this moment is this is really the birth of the church. Uh, Jesus is, um, I think, giving us a graphic example in the person of his mother and John that here in the church we find a family, a family that we're going to have stuff in common with a million years from now in glory, more than even some of our close familial relationships on the earth. Uh, Jesus said things um, during his earthly ministry like at one point, his family came to find him. He was in a house that was packed, and he was teaching, and they tried to get word to him to come out and see them. And they said, your mom and your sisters and your brothers are outside. And he said, who are my mother and my sisters and my brother? They, 
people who are obey my obey my commands are my family. Another time he said, those who love father or mother more than me are not worthy of me. And there he wasn't trying to say we should have a lower opinion of our family or less love for them, but he's elevating in our consciousness the new place that the church and our relationship with Jesus would hold. And so I think here in this moment from the cross, he is speaking to the great, real, powerful, satisfying relationship that was birthed in the church. Mary, this is your son. John, this is your mom. That's the kind of relationship we're going to have among God's family. Then we're told that darkness covered the land. A supernatural darkness fell over the land. And Jesus cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thing I want you to see at this moment is that this is the moment of greatest torture for Jesus. You can whip him, you can nail him to a cross, you can make him suffocate, his own lungs filling up with fluid as he stands there for six hours being crucified. But the greatest, worst torment that was visited upon Jesus at the moment of the resurrection is when he became sin. When Jesus, who was holy, 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 the righteous God in the flesh, The Bible says that he didn't just take on your sin. In 2 Corinthians, we're told he became sin in your place. Jesus, perfectly righteous Jesus, became everything shameful you've ever done and all that was ever done to you. He became that. And God, who is righteous, looked away. For the first time in all of eternity, God became sin. And he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who was dying of internal injuries, his lungs filling up with fluid, cried out that he was thirsty. And they brought him some bitter stuff that he drank. And then he said, it is finished, according to John, followed by, into your hands, I commit my spirit. At that moment, the Bible says there was an earthquake, and the temple veil was torn in two. This is a powerful moment. Right as God poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross, in the temple, there was a part of the temple where it was believed that God dwelled in a special way, and no one could go in there without dying. But in this moment, when Jesus committed his spirit to the Lord and said, it is finished. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, signifying that now anyone can go into the presence of God. You can go home. All of your sins were taken away. They were laid on Jesus. And now nothing is barring you from going into the presence of the Holy of Holies. At this moment... With the darkness covering the land, the earthquake, the temple torn in, the temple veil torn in two, a centurion who was looking on said, surely he was the son of God. The soldiers, who like any working man, just wanted to get this day's work over with, if somebody was still lingering, clinging to life, at life after that long being crucified, they went and would break their legs. 
part of the crucifixion was you're suspended. There was usually a block underneath the legs, and you're actually dying from suffocation. Uh, you're in that position, your lungs would fill up with fluid, and so as you slouched down in pain and agony, the only way to catch a breath was to stand up. So even though their legs were affixed to the cross with a nail through them, it's extremely painful, they would keep straightening themselves up to try and catch a breath. And so the soldiers, to hasten death, would come and actually break the legs of people who were being crucified. And then they were unable to stand up, they slumped down, and it was a quicker way to die. So they came and they did that to the two thieves who were crucified alongside Jesus. They were still clinging to life, but the soldiers came and broke the legs, so they had to slump down, and they succumbed to death. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so to confirm his death, they took a spear and they stuck it in his side. And what comes out is a mixture of blood and water, which is medical testimony to the fact that he had died as a result of that which kills you in crucifixion. And it also fulfilled Old Testament prophecies concerning that they would witness him who was pierced. Then after all of this long six hours of torturous crucifixion, beating, mocking, Jesus is taken down from the cross, he's removed and put in a tomb. And that's a dark place to finish. And that's right exactly where Good Friday would have us finish. It's a dark place. It's a depressing place. It was a sad day, a sad moment. And the disciples were confused. They didn't have the benefit of the completed scriptures that we have. They didn't know what was going to happen next. <laughs> I was, uh, one time I was watching a story about a, a man, a missionary, who brought somebody back from the jungle in Brazil. I think it was Brazil, maybe South America somewhere. Brought this man back to the United States to come speak at some churches. And it was his first time in the United States. He'd lived a very simple life, almost like a Stone Age life. And took him to the store. And at the store, he bought a big pile of stuff. And they went through the checkout and he handed him his credit card at the end and he scanned it and gave it back to him. And, and he said, they let you take all that stuff for free? And he said, no, 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 I gave him my card. And he said, yeah, but he gave it right back to you. <laughs> so, no, he didn't, you know, that was no trade. He gave it right back. Clearly didn't understand. But I think for some of us, when we come to the story of the cross, we think, yeah, but there's the resurrection. He's not really dead, not in the way. We know how the story goes. But to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, of his mother, of the Jewish religious authority, of people who loved him and hated him on Friday, everyone felt emotions that were made sense with the death of this man. They were either celebrating his demise or they were mourning the end of a great man and friend. Friday, all of those emotions were there that we would feel if we lost somebody very close to us. Now, the details of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus are really interesting reading. I just went through it in bullet, port, bullet point format. If you want to prepare your hearts for Easter this week, set out to read the crucifixion accounts in all four Gospels. It's really worthwhile reading. 
But one of the reasons why I find the story of Jesus' trial, his arrest, trial, and crucifixion really interesting is the way that we're invited through the biblical text to compare and contrast Jesus with the most powerful and influential people in Judea at that time. Over the course of about 24 hours, Jesus will interact with a who's who of the ruling elite in Jerusalem. He shares space with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. In Luke 23, we read about him appearing before a client king named Herod Antipas, and he'll be dragged before the high priest Caiaphas and that august body of ruling religious authority, the Sanhedrin. And what a spectacle it is to witness these men interacting with God (laughs) and treating him with such scorn and with such a callous disregard for the truth. Now, each of these men that Jesus shares space with in these 24 hours before his death, they're different from one another in some significant way, but each wields power alike and far differently than Jesus does. And there are many lessons that we can take away from the crucifixion. And of course, most important of them all, is God's plan to release us from our enormous sin debt, out from under our enormous sin debt, through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Let's never lose sight of this. Jesus was not taken advantage of in Jerusalem. He was not overpowered. He was not outmaneuvered. He was not dealt with by men in ways that he did not will and sanction. Jesus went to the cross of his own free will and volition, and what held God Almighty on the cross was not metal nails, but his love for you. Your need is why he stayed. That's why he died. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I can pick it up. He is sovereign. He is God Almighty. Nobody acts upon him, he acts as he wills, and what he willed for himself is the cross. Guys, this is the great, central, beautiful thing of Christianity. No other religion has such a thing as this, that God in his perfect sovereignty, in his perfect righteousness, chose the cross. Your need is what brought him there absolutely amazing. So that's the most important thing to know about the cross, is that God who is righteous, a righteous judge, must punish sin. If he is to remain perfect in his attributes, perfectly righteous and just, sin has to be punished. But he is also a God of love and grace and mercy. And so amazingly, what we see God doing and therefore remaining perfect in his attributes, not compromising on any of it, is he poured out his wrath onto himself on the cross. God sent his only begotten son that you, believing in him, might not perish but have everlasting life. This is the amazing, gracious truth at the heart of Christianity. And it's on offer to anybody. I'm looking out over a lot of people here who are low-down, dirty sinners, every single last one of you. 
You need a Savior. You need Jesus. And now the veil is torn in two. There is nothing preventing you from coming to God. There is nothing. Jesus paid it all. And if you would but put your trust in Him for salvation, believing in Him by faith, you can pass from death to life. You can become a child of God. That's the great central truth of the cross. But another truth, which is worthy of our examination, is surely that Jesus sets before us in this moment a more excellent way to live our lives. So in other words, the cross is significant in teaching us how we might live forever, but it also is helpful in teaching us to know the more excellent way to live right now. And I don't know, I'm speaking to a mixed crowd, I'm sure. There may be people here in attendance this morning who have not put their trust in Jesus for salvation. You're here, you're thinking about it, you're checking it out, and I want you to know that at the cross, Jesus took all your sins onto Himself. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody, and the wages of sin is death. But God, who is rich in mercy, poured out all of His wrath for sin on Jesus, and you can be given in exchange His perfect righteousness. But for many of you, it has been a long time since you made that decision personally. You've put your trust in Jesus for salvation. You are learning to follow Jesus. We're all becoming what we worship. And by degrees, those who have passed from life to death, they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are becoming more and more like Jesus through what we oftentimes call in a very Christianese kind of sounding word, the process of sanctification. We're being made more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. We're becoming like the God who saved us. And so as we speak about the cross, we're having these two conversations at the same time. The cross shows that you can become a follower of Jesus, and it also shows us how we can go deeper as a follower of Jesus. Jesus famously said, take up your cross and follow me. That's an invitation to now follow him as somebody who went to the cross. What does that mean for you as a Jesus follower this morning? He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, the cross is the greatest expression of Jesus' love for us. What does that mean for how we are to love one another? In each of these statements and others besides, Jesus is calling us toward a servant leadership and a more excellent way of living than we see in the surrounding culture. And this sharp distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of the world is brought into stark relief when we see Jesus interacting with these powerful men. When you read the gospel accounts, you will see that on many occasions, although the religious authorities harbored an intense, even homicidal anger toward Jesus, they were prevented again and again from acting on their hatred of Jesus because of the mysterious restraining hand of God. If you read the gospel accounts, you'll find many times it says that it was not yet time, and that's why mysteriously they tried to grab him or something and just didn't happen. For example, John 7.30, it says, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This kind of verse we read again and again and again where Jesus in some public confrontation 
with these religious authorities has said something that just absolutely enrages them. And they want to act on it in that moment. They want to stone him or grab him or do something. But the mysterious restraining hand of God prevents it because Jesus' hour had not yet come. These men were dangerous. They were lions, but they were lions on a leash. And they were restrained and prevented from moving against Jesus. But now at the moment of the crucifixion, Jesus, God lets slip the leash, and these men finally pounce. Now, nothing can come against Jesus and His church that is not allowed. That's true. And whatever God allows, you can be sure, will ultimately be for our good. And now the Father allows all of this to fall on Jesus. And it is happening for your good, for my good. It needs to happen. So overnight, these men arrest Jesus. They bind him and bring him before the high priest for questioning. One of their officers, and I hope this man became a believer. <laughs> I, I hope he became a believer. I shudder to think one of the guards actually smacks Jesus around because an answer that Jesus gave, he determines, he thinks is kind of smart-alecky. You can read the account in the Bible. But what a horrifying thing to one day stand before the throne of judgment, having laid hands on the judge. <laughs> I hope that man came to repentance. He actually smacks Jesus around. However, even though God the Father is no longer restraining these bloodthirsty men, they are still somewhat restrained by another force that is above them, and that's the long arm of Caesar in Rome. They had lost around 6 or 7 AD when Rome conquered Judea and made it a subject province of the empire. I don't know if that word is the right word, province. They had lost the legal power to put people to death. So now, if they wanted Jesus dead, and if they wanted it done in such a way that it would publicly vindicate them and avenge their injured pride, you see, it wouldn't do to drag Jesus off and kill him secretly. They wanted public vindication for all the times that Jesus had publicly shamed them. And if they wanted him to die that kind of a death, well, they would need Rome to be their executioner. So early in the morning, a ginned-up and angry mob shows up outside the praetorium where Pontius Pilate lived. Now, according to ancient historians, Philo and Josephus, Pilate was an extraordinarily unpopular figure in Judea. Because, and I read this in one account this week, they, they say that he governed in a very tone-deaf way to Jewish sensibilities. Uh, I'm no historian. I don't know who I am. I'm not qualified to make this judgment, but that's an incorrect statement. Pontius Pilate was not tone-deaf to Jewish sensibilities. That would imply that he was like a bull in a china shop. He was good-natured but ignorant. 
Saying he's tone deaf implies ignorance, and I don't think he was. I think he really liked provoking the people that he governed. And we see this, by the way, not only in the works of ancient historians, but also in John's gospel. I already talked about that famous moment when they say, no, 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 put on the sign, he said he was king of the Jews. And I don't think he's tone deaf in his answer. I think he's hitting all the notes he wants to hit. (laughs) When he says, what I've written, I've written, deal with it. He's scornful and contemptuous of the Jewish people. Now, you might say, Josh, that's an awfully big statement. How can you say that about a man you've never met and have barely, you've read a Wikipedia page about? How can you say that? I would say it based on this. Uh, in, our, in the Bible, John portrays Pilate. John deals more with Pilate than any of the other gospel writers. And John, when he talks about Pilate, presents him as being ignorant of Jesus to such an incredible degree that he's never even heard about him. He's never heard about Jesus' incredible signs or even why such controversy surrounded him in the first place. And this is really kind of amazing, given the public notoriety of Jesus. When Pilate sends him to Herod Antipas... Herod's excited because he's heard all about Jesus. He's heard about his signs and the amazing things he's done, and now this is his chance to finally get to see it. But Pilate's never even heard of this cat. And this is surely a portrait of a man who is incurious, yes, but also whose sandals are not often dusty with the streets of Jerusalem. He does not want to go out and mix with these people. He doesn't know what's going on in the very region he governs. Everyone in the whole of Judea is doing nothing but talking about Jesus, and Pilate's never heard of him? (laughs) Jesus resurrecting people from the dead, large crowds and a growing following. He entered Jerusalem people proclaiming him as king and the Messiah, and Pilate has never heard of this guy? This is pretty amazing stuff. I really do think that a lot of people today are like Pilate. I think if you were looking in the gospel accounts for somebody who looks most like an American living in 2023, I would say Pilate is our representative. Pilate is the 2023 American in the gospel story. He is completely absorbed in his own pursuits and concerns. He's locked up in his myopic little world. He views this as some strange Jewish religious matter that has nothing to do with him. And his first serious introduction to Jesus or his church comes not because of personal conviction or even curiosity, but because public outrage comes knocking at the door demanding that he pass verdict. Thumbs up or down, Pilate? He's scrolling through Facebook, essentially, (laughs) and somebody puts an opinion up there, and now he's got a, am I going to like or dislike what Jesus is saying? He's incurious. He doesn't know anything about it. And his first real serious introduction to Jesus is an angry mob at his door. 
Pontius Pilate never, so far as we know, insofar as the biblical text tells us, heard Jesus teach or experienced a miracle. Arguably, Pilate is the most neutral, disinterested person we meet in all of the gospel. He has little interest, no stake in what he views as a Jewish religious matter. He enters a cultural or religious dispute as a secular official with sort of an annoyed, contemptuous neutrality. Now, by contrast, Herod, Herod knows all about Jesus and bizarrely looks upon him as entertainment. And then there's the Sanhedrin. Now, all of these men, Pilate, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Herod, they're each different in their response to Jesus, but in some ways, in some respects, they're all the same. Three things stand out to me that these human rulers have in common, and I think there's real value in seeing them compared to Jesus. One, each of them acts in ways that are self-serving. Second, they prefer the good opinion of others over righteousness and the truth. And third, none of them model for us a right use of power and strength. Jesus, by comparison, is self-sacrificing rather than self-serving. He seeks to please the Father rather than appease the mob. And He does model for us a right use of power and strength. I want to spend just a little time with each of these three thoughts. I promise I'll motor right along here. The first is this idea of self-serving versus self-sacrificing. There's a scene recorded, us, recorded for us in three of the four Gospels that would be, well, it would be funny if it weren't so stinking tragic. Uh, this interaction is between Jesus and His disciples. One of the Gospel accounts say that the conversation was initiated by the mother of two of the disciples. The, uh, two, uh, the other two gospel accounts lay the blame at the feet of these disciples. Uh, now, I don't think that's a contradiction. I think um, they may have asked their mother to go and make the request of Jesus, but I think two of the gospel accounts say, well, let's just cut out the middleman. The mother was just their means of asking Jesus. It was them who wanted it <laughs> and put her up to it. That's probably really what happened. But here's what happens. They're actually on their way. We're told this is happening right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the beginning of that most historic week in the history of the world. We pick it up in Mark 10.35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, first of all, <laughs> if anybody ever starts a conversation with, whatever I ask of you, I want you to do, red flag big time. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. For it is, those for whom it, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, as you can imagine they would. In the midst of this conversation, again, Jesus is speaking in ways that were not understood by the disciples, at least not yet. When he's talking about the cup he's going to drink and the baptism with which he's going to be baptized, he's talking about the cross. This is what he's saying. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to drink the cup I'm going to drink. Your mind is full of all these ideas of a big office and lots of power, and you do not yet realize that the path to glory is through the cross. Jesus is saying in a veiled way, you're going to get there, but you have no idea what you're asking about today. And then the other disciples who are listening in on this conversation, imagine the gall of these guys having this conversation in front of these other disciples. They're indignant, we're told. The understatement of the century. Jesus sees what's happening in the hearts of his followers, and he calls them to him. Guys, huddle up. (laughs) And he says this, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There it is. I think one of the things we see in sharp contrast between Jesus and this who's who of the ruling elite in Jerusalem is that they are self-serving to a man, and Jesus is self-sacrificing. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life a ransom for many. But again, not so with these human rulers. Pilate fears Caesar to such a degree that even after publicly proclaiming the innocence of Jesus, he crucifies him anyway. Have you ever thought about what a craven thing that is to come out in front of everybody, say, this man is, there's no guilt in him, he's innocent, but kill him. (laughs) It's a shocking thing that Pilate does. Absolutely zero integrity in this moment. He sends Jesus to be crucified knowing full well and having stated publicly that he had done nothing worthy of being put to death. And he does this to save his own neck. Herod Antipas was a man given over to lust and hedonism. The portrayal of him in Scripture is that of a man who uses and exploits people. People for him are a means to all kinds of unwholesome ends. By contrast, Jesus, who, let's not forget it, is God in the flesh, is nevertheless the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Herod Antipas, you might remember, was the figure who had John the Baptist beheaded. John the Baptist had criticized him for taking his brother's wife. And he, had, he, he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. He kind of kept him around. The Bible says that he enjoyed listening to him. Again, He sought John the Baptist as entertainment in the same way that he did Jesus. And then one day his, I guess, stepdaughter was dancing, pleasing him and the guests. He's so pleased with her display that he tells her, 
I'll give you up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. And his mom, her mom, who hated John the Baptist for opposing her marriage, said, tell him you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And John the Baptist and, and Herod was stuck. Everybody's watching. He'd made this promise. And so even though John the Baptist was innocent, and he kind of enjoyed John the Baptist, to please the crowd, he had his head cut off. That's Herod. That's who Jesus appeared before. How different is that? <laughs> How different is that from the Prince of Peace who went to the cross? At the cross, with the crown of thorns jabbed down over his head, we have a strange coronation. Very strange coronation. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then it says, here's the basis for why you should live this way. Here's your motivation and your inspiration. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This others-focused, others-serving way of living is a natural course of following a man who went to the cross. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 22, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. At every opportunity and in almost too many scriptures to count, we are encouraged as God's special people to follow Jesus' example in humility and to reject the pride that encourages us towards being a self-serving people. The VIPs, the VIPs of that day in Israel were the religious leaders. They were considered the most important, powerful, respected, and influential people among the Israelites. Uh, you might say that Pilate might have had greater positional authority. He might have held the levers of a lot of the, the workings of government. Maybe even Herod did. But in the minds of the people, the highest authority morally were these Jewish religious leaders. They were seated in the places of honor, but they were using their titles and the special robes worn by their kind to build a wall of separation between them and those who they thought of as being beneath them. And it's no surprise then that sparks would fly whenever Jesus encountered these guys on the pages of Scripture or the streets of Judea. Jesus, the Creator, God in the flesh, the one to whom all glory, honor, and praise were absolutely due, had amazingly emptied himself of all his glory, counting not equality with God a thing to be laid a hold of, in order that he might associate with you, friend. And we find him at the crucifixion, associating with us to such an amazing degree that he wears all of our sins publicly. This is so different from the men and the way that they wield power that Jesus encounters in this 24 hours before the crucifixion. 
This brings us to our second way that they're different, which is that although these men were very false to the truth, and Jesus was deeply committed to it. At one point, Pilate will question Jesus privately, and we could see why he would be prompted to do this. You'd have to get to the bottom of this by talking to Jesus directly, because the Pharisees come to him with this bizarre, evolving prosecution. When they first show up at Pilate's house, they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, trust us. He's bad. <laughs> Kill him. Pilate's not trusting them. He needs to see the facts. Show me your receipts. I'm not going to put this man to death on your say-so. You've got to actually name a crime. So then in 19 verse 7, they say this. The Jews answered him, well, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. So the first time they show up and they say, he's bad, kill him. Pilate says, that's not enough. So then they say, well, we have a law, it's a religious thing, he's a blasphemer, he says he's God, he's not, kill him for that. And Pilate follows a man who claims to be God, Caesar. So, so, so he's not, yeah, men are doing this kind of stuff all over the place. Sure, why not? He's still not impressed. This just convinces him this is a Jewish religious dispute. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So then, in verse 12, they come back to him a third time. They're honing their prosecution of Jesus. They're just throwing stuff at the wall until something sticks. So then they say, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, and he says he's a king. Now they got Pilate. <laughs> now Pilate's listening. If word gets back to Caesar that a Jewish rabble with a lot of followers claimed that he was king and he had him in his clutch and let him go, well, that would be a problem for him politically. So he, he interviews Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate says, what is truth? What a statement. <laughs> that question, what is truth, reveals a deep cynicism in this man. Truth is a matter of perspective. You say one thing, Jesus, they say another. What is truth? Pilate himself is false to the truth. Again, he finds no fault in Jesus. But even though that's a truth that Pilate knows and believes, what we see in Pilate is what we see all too often into the world today. 
He loved the good opinion of others more than the truth. Don't get me wrong, he didn't care one iota what the Jewish religious authority thought. But we all have our pressure points, don't we? We all have somebody who push comes to shove, their good opinion of us matters. And in this moment, Pilate knows this man to be no threat. He is innocent, there is no wrongdoing in him. But he cares what Caesar thinks. And he is willing to sacrifice what he knows to be true in order to maintain the good opinion of Caesar. We know this because in John 19 it says, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And then it says, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. They got him. I think one of the most ridiculous things about Pilate is in Matthew 27, 24, we're told about after passing judgment on Jesus, he comes out and he does this public thing where he washes his hands in front of everybody. He's saying, take him, crucify him, but I had, this is not my doing. Silly. <laughs> Absolutely silly. He thinks he can be Switzerland. He thinks he can be a neutral person on the question of Jesus. Nobody's Switzerland. If you're here this morning, I want you to know that you are not neutral in the great question of who Jesus is. You're not. You can't wash your hands of this as something that other people debate about. This is a matter which, if it's rightly understood, is something all human beings have to wrestle with and answer. Jesus came into the world making some really outrageous claims. He came saying that He is the King of the world, He's the Messiah, He's the Savior, He's Lord, He is God in the flesh, He is the living personification of all that's right and good. And He came as a lamb the first time, as a sacrifice for all of mankind's sins, and He also says He's coming back to judge every single last one of you and me. You are not Switzerland. You cannot wash your hands of Jesus. You have to make a decision about Him. Say what you will <laughs> about the Pharisees, but at least their response to Jesus makes sense. I'll tell you who doesn't make sense is Pilate. Pilate is a fool with a capital F. He thinks he can sidestep the question somehow. He can wash his hands of responsibility. You cannot. The Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying, and they hated him for it. Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. And they said, I hate that. I want to kill you. Pilate hears it, and he goes, what even is that? He yawns. He passes the buck. He tries to just move on from the whole thing, and you can't do it. You cannot. You might be able to do it today. But you cannot do it at the end of your life when you stand before the throne of judgment. All of us will one day die. All of us will one day stand before the righteous judge. And on that day, none of your attainments will matter. 
the only thing that will matter, the only thing, is what you say about Jesus. Pilate is a fool in the final analysis. This brings us to our last point here about Jesus and these men, which has to do with the wrong use of power and the right use of power. It's hard to talk about this subject without invoking the biblical imagery of a shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 15, 12 through 13, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What we need to see here is that Jesus, who is God, and you cannot think of a more powerful being than God, the beginning of John's gospel says that all that is was made through Jesus. You cannot think of a greater act of power than bringing into existence out of nothing all that is. It's powerful, I suppose, to repair. It's powerful to do lots of things, but none of us have the power to bring into existence out of nothing something. Jesus is that powerful God. And when we think about the way that He used all His strength and all His power... He used that in the spirit of a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, a lot of kingdoms have been founded in blood. But whereas human kings have often established themselves through the taking of an enemy's life, Jesus' kingdom would come into existence when the Prince of Peace gave his own life up for the sake of his enemies. Jesus' kingdom was born not when he took his enemy's life, but when he gave his own life up for the sake of those who were his enemies. And I, Josh Tate, was one of them. And you were too. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is an awesome and a right use of power. Mark 10.45, again, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is the amazing thing that happens on the cross. We see the shepherd, God, Jesus, laying down His life for the sake of those who are below Him and opposed to Him. You just do not see the like. You certainly don't see the like in the life of Pilate or Herod or Caiaphas. But I want to see this more and more in my own life and in our church. And I think we are seeing it by degrees. <laughs> None of us perfectly, but we're all growing together in this direction, I hope and pray. So that's where we leave it. Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb. Everyone's sad about it. Come back next week and hear the rest of the story, because there is another chapter, the amazing story of what happens next.